Okay, so uh, the class this morning, I'm, I'm excited to teach it to you. Uh, this is truly a, more of a Sunday school lesson and less of a sermon. Sometimes I get emails from y'all saying, boy, you were preaching today. Some lessons preach better than others. Some lessons teach better than others. This is more of a teaching lesson than a preaching lesson. So if you came in to be exhorted, you might want to scoot out the back and go hear Fleming again because uh, he can do it twice as well as he does the first time. I got a phone call a week before last, I think. It was about seven to ten days ago from our daughter, Gracie. Gracie is studying in college. She's a junior. And Gracie is taking a religion class, New Testament, Introduction to New Testament. And she called me very distressed. She said, Dad. I said, what? She said, you know this New Testament class I'm taking? I said, yes. And I, I've read her book, I, I, uh, the textbook she uses. I said, sure. She said, well, you won't believe what the teacher said today. And I said, no, I probably won't, but try me anyway. And she said, he said Ephesians was not written by Paul. And she, she was very distressed. She said, and if it's not written by Paul, then, then just what am I supposed to believe? And I said, well, honey, your teacher may not believe it was written by Paul, but I promise you, your teacher, genuine, good-hearted fella, but he doesn't have all the answers. And he represents a school of thought. And I think he's wrong. And so do a bunch of other really studious people. I said, so, so, she said, well, what am I supposed to do? I said, well, I can't really give you an answer that long over the telephone right now, but we can talk about it over Thanksgiving, and I'll put it into the class lesson so you can read it and watch it on the internet. So, this one's for you, Gracie. <laughs> I took a class called Pauline Theology in 1978. I took it uh, uh, from a, a fellow named Chapman who was the teacher and he gave us a number of books, textbooks, that represented a spectrum of belief and ideology. And one of the books was The Writings of St. Paul, edited by a fellow named Wayne Meeks. Wayne was teaching at the time at Yale University. And this was one of my textbooks. And it's an interesting textbook. Because it has a, a section that deals with, well, let's look at the table of contents together. The undoubted letters of Paul. And then works of the Pauline school. Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Ephesians. And the pastoral letters, which are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And that was a class that, uh, uh, book that I got where a number of the letters that we were taught were written by Paul, that claimed to be written by Paul, according to this Yale University professor, were not. They were written by the Pauline school. <clears throat> Fascinating what he says in here. He says, um, the pastoral letters, for example, that's uh, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. 
he says um, he thinks they were written around 125 A.D., 60 years after Paul would have died. He says the closely related group of documents which purport to be Paul's letters of instruction to Timothy and Titus are almost certainly pseudonymous. Pseudonymous. Pseudon, pseud, written by someone else. That's the way we say it in Lubbock. You know how to pronounce that word in Lubbock? You pronounce it written by someone else. Of course, the evidence is not conclusive, and there are important scholars who still support Pauline authorship, but, look at this, the evidence to the contrary that Paul did not write it is so extensive that it's doubtful whether anyone would continue to defend the traditional position apart from reluctance to admit that a deliberate fiction could have been accepted into the New Testament canon. Well, if you were to go into our library at home, you'd find probably a couple of hundred volumes on Paul. I pulled three off the shelf to prepare this lesson that I thought, based on memory and knowledge, might pertain to this. Meeks being the first one because I remembered it from when I had to read it as a text. The second one is by a German who wrote at the end of the 1800s. But he was such a prolific and well-recognized theologian that his stuff's still being produced today. His name was Dr. Ferdinand Christian Bauer. And uh, you can see from this snazzy work, this is a recent printing. I mean, this stuff from 1898 is still being pr printed today. And he has some things to say as well. Let's stay on the PowerPoint for a moment. He says the verdict of criticism is that these books could not have been written by Paul. In fact, he says that, uh, uh, let's look at it in light of the pastoral epistles because that's where we're going to be reading today. He talks about the, look what he calls it, the fact, the fact that there are forged Pauline letters in our canon, in our scripture. To him, that's a fact. Or a book by Gunther Bornkam, another German scholar. In fact, this book was given to me by Mark. He found it at a used bookstore or something up uh, where? In Vancouver or somewhere. Where? Denton? <laughs> that explains a lot. No, this is, this is a well-respected uh, author and uh, uh, a well-respected theologian. And uh, he was the professor of New Testament exegesis at Heidelberg University when he wrote this some years ago. And if we read this, he'll note the following. He says, in this book, the following are regarded as deutero-Pauline for the reasons detailed in each case. In other words, not authentic Pauline, but a second Paul. Someone wrote it writing under the name of Paul. And so he includes there the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. He includes Ephesians, 
Colossians and 2 Thessalonians says these are, are not authentic Paul letters. And so Gracie needs to understand and we need to understand that if you go and you pull a book off a shelf or you find a certain strain of theological teaching, you're going to find Christian writers who tell and teach that all of what we consider the letters of Paul are not really the letters of Paul. Some are fakes and forgeries. Or writings of what's called the Pauline school. So I want to discuss with you some important things that are in the pastoral epistles. But we've been teaching this class for two years. And we're bringing it to a close. And we're not fair to you if you're learning in this class. If we don't address the issue of what letters Paul really wrote and what he didn't. Are the scholars that say this correct? Are we just narrow-minded, uneducated, little schlocks running around in Houston, coming down to our little Baptist church and sitting in our little Baptist Sunday school? Or might we truly have some grain of gray matter that justifies our concerns and our thoughts about Scripture? I vote for the gray matter. And I'm going to tell you why. So we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the authenticity of Paul's writings before we get into those writings for church structure. If you would work with me in that regard, please. And I need to preface this for your sakes and for the sake of Gracie and the class and people on the internet. With this question, can someone question whether or not Ephesians is truly Paul's writing? Or Colossians that David's been preaching on? Or the pastoral epistles? Can someone question whether or not Paul genuinely wrote those and still be a Christian? Well, there are three possible answers I see to that. One possibility is... And, 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 and this is what we need to understand to answer that. One possibility is Paul wrote the scriptures. He wrote them and the Bible's true. Okay, you with me? That's a possible. Meeks may not agree. Borkum and Bauer may not agree. Gracie's professor may not agree. But it's a possible. Possibility number two. Paul did not write it. And so the Bible's false. Those are the two that Gracie had in her mind. Gracie said to me, Dad, if Paul didn't write Ephesians, then what can I believe in the Bible? If a deliberate fiction is in the Bible, then I guess the whole Bible could be fiction. One domino starts tumbling and all the other dominoes tumble. And before you know it, was Jesus God... And was he resurrected from the dead? And that's Gracie's mentality. Now, I do want to tell you that there is a third possibility. That there are people who can legitimately say, I don't think Paul wrote Ephesians, but I still believe the Bible is truly God's word. 
And in our immediate fellowship, that's a very tough pill for us to accept, that there are people who might actually view it that way. But I want to tell you, while I am of the opinion of number one, I do believe that you can academically and religiously legitimately hold to number three. I just don't. I don't think if you believe... Let me give you a couple of chewing points on this. Who wrote the book of Hebrews? We don't really know. But the church has recognized it as canon and authority from God. And scripturally, it resounds with God's truth. If Paul did not actually pin Ephesians, and instead it was put together by a consortium of his students and followers who remembered what Paul had said and taught, and the church had accepted it on that basis, then... To me, that doesn't mean that you have to throw away Scripture. To me, that's just part of the richness of how God's put it together, if that were true. I don't think it's true. But I don't, it's not, the reason I don't think it's true is not because I've got to dogmatically cling to my view of Scripture. It's because academically, it just doesn't hold water to me. I put it in the scales. And it's just not compelling evidence. The compelling evidence for me is Paul wrote it. But if it were compelling the other way, I wouldn't run away from my faith with the dominoes all falling. And I tell you that because some of our children are going to be at universities and it's very possible that one of our children's going to take that class and say, gee, Dad, I think the evidence goes the other way. And I don't want my children or your children or grandchildren or anyone saying, as a result, I have to throw away my faith. Okay? So, why then do I say what I say and what I believe? And what admonitions and warnings would I give people like Gracie? Number one, beware of pseudo-intellectualism. Let me tell you what I mean. I know some smart people. Steve Taylor. He's a smart guy. Okay? I know some smart people. I know some people who are probably smarter than they realize they are. I've also been blessed in my life to meet, get to know, and work with some really incredibly brilliant people. People whose brains operate on an incredible level. And, and I don't mean that as an insult to the rest of us. You know, there are a bunch of really good musicians. But there are only a handful of Beethovens. Only a handful of... Uh, Paul McCartney's who can come up with a melody off the top of their head when they've done it hundreds of times. Okay. There are tons of bright people, but 
I've been around some really intelligent, brilliant people. And the problem is, a lot of folks would like to claim to be in that category when, truth be told, they're not. They're followers. The really incredibly brilliant people I've met are the people who can think of something that really nobody else has thought of. Put a twist on something nobody else sees, whose brain is just firing in 30 different directions, and yet when after it fires, it all synthesizes down, and they pull it out of the oven, and it's a cake. But there's a difference between the chef who makes that cake and hostess Twinkies. Try as the Twinkie might to claim itself a gastronomic delight. I'm hungry, can you tell? <laughs> I say be careful of pseudo-intellectualism because there are a strain of people who want to be brilliant, who think that some smart German theologians figured something out in the 1800s and it's the current vein of thinking that populates people who teach at Yale, which is a big university. You know, we've heard of it. I've been on the campus. They've got the t-shirts. Yale, the Texas Tech of the North. <laughs> uh, you know, they hear this stuff and they want to be on that bandwagon so they can be intellectual too. Gracie has a textbook. I wish I'd gotten a copy of it and brought it. But the textbook, I read her textbook and I said, honey, I said, please don't believe everything you read in here. If it were a math book teaching you two plus two is four, I would not take issue. But it writes as if it's science. And I said, it's not. Because this guy who wrote this book doesn't really know a lot of what he's saying. She said, how do you know? I said, because I have a degree in Greek and I dare say he doesn't. Because I'm looking at the way he's referencing the Greek. And I can tell you immediately, he's copying it from another book. Because he's not consistent in the way he quotes it. And if I were a lawyer and had him on the stand and cross-examined him on this, I'd have him confessing in weeping tears within 15 minutes. I got more issues. Well, who says I can't preach or teach? Okay, look at this. Did you know that there are about 20 really good logical fallacies that have been pointed out since Aristotle wrote his rhetoric? Okay, uh, uh, just because something happens after something else doesn't mean the first thing caused it. That's a logical fallacy. Post hoc ergo proctor hoc is what it is in the last. Okay, there, there are all of these... Okay, you want to know one of the logical fallacies? Oh, we all know some of them. You've heard of begging the question? That's, when did you stop beating your wife? Well, uh, that begs the question. The question is, do you beat your wife? Okay, you're not, you, you, a lawyer can't, that's a trick. Of a, that's a lawyer trick. Steve, when did you stop beating Michelle? Well, he never beat Michelle. So, what does he say? Uh, today? Well, no, that leaves the implication he did yesterday, okay? All right. 
Here's a logical fallacy. This is called argumentum ad hominem. Arguing against a person instead of giving logic. Look what our buddy, the meat boy, said. The meat man. The meekness. Mr. I want to inherit the earth. Um, when Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, I don't think he's necessarily talking about this guy. <laughs> Maybe his wife. Um, listen to this. This is a logical fallacy. He says, the evidence to the contrary, evidence that supports my view that Paul wrote it, is, oh, oh, that Paul did not write it. I'm sorry. The evidence to the contrary that Paul did not write these books is so extensive that it's doubtful whether anyone would continue to defend Lanier's position apart from a reluctance to admit that a deliberate fiction could have been accepted into the New Testament canon. Only reason someone's not going to accept the truth is because they're just, they've got blinders on. They're stupid. They're uneducated. They're dumb. It's the only reason I can see they wouldn't accept my conclusion. Okay, that's not a logical argument. That's called an argument against the person. It's poison in the well. It's trying to destroy the credibility of a position before you actually address it. If it's so clear, Mr. Meeks, just explain it to me. You don't have to put me down if I don't agree with it. And make it seem like yours is the intellectual position. Because I've cross-examined noble laurelets before. I've put the experts on the stand. I've cross-examined experts in so many different areas. And do you know what I've decided? There are only a very few that are really that smart. Most of them wish they were. Let me give you an example. This fellow says, the practice of pseudonymous publication... Remember, that's Lubbock for some, written by someone else. Was so common in antiquity that it would be astonishing if no pseudonymous work among the dozens we know of in early Christian literature made it into the canon. So many people were writing under fake names. It's just preposterous to think none of it made it into the Bible. And this is a fiction of a very special kind. Okay. <laughs> there is another book that was pseudonymous. It's called The Acts of Paul and Thecla. It was written about 120, when the guy thinks this was written. And it was written by a bishop of the church in Asia Minor around Ephesus who thought he was doing Paul a great service by writing this and passing it off as authentic. He got caught. He got defrocked. And he got kicked out of the church. So don't sit here and tell me, well, the practice was very common in Hellenistic. Well, it wasn't common in the church. And they're all, the logical fallacies of this are astonishing. I got another issue. Primary versus secondary research. I didn't understand this issue as much till I became a lawyer. You may already understand this issue. If so, please accept my apologies for going into it in a little detail. If I want to know, did Paul write it, I can do secondary research, which means I'm going to go read what people say. Or I can do primary research, 
which means I'm going to look at what their opinions are and I'm going to chase down those opinions and see firsthand what's valid and what's not. I've preached when I was a young child of, you know, 40. No, um, when I was <clears throat> really young, I preached a sermon one time. And I was preaching about baptism. And I was preaching to a, a, a group that calls themselves the Church of Christ. And baptism's a big thing in the Church of Christ. And I was setting it on fire. And I told them baptism means immersion. The only reason, I said, we have the word baptism is because when King James was being translated into English, the translators came across that Greek word baptizo. They knew it meant immersion, but King James had not been immersed. And they were afraid of losing their heads if they put immersion. So they made up the English word baptized. I taught that because I had been taught that. In fact, I've gotten an email on that within the last month from another fella at a Baptist church who heard it from his preacher and was going to go out and preach it. The fact that I said that because I had heard it from another preacher means I was doing secondary research. Primary research says go back there and find out where it happened. Let's dig down. Let's find out what the truth is. And you know what? That whole thing I've been teaching that everybody else, not everybody else, that other people seem to teach to, it's wrong. The word baptize was in the English language before the King James Version of the Bible. It's what Tyndale used when he published his English Version of the Bible a hundred years earlier. When you dig down and do primary research, you find out tons of things. You do secondary research, and it's not even as good as what you're relying on. Because it's like cutting the same board 30 times. You don't cut it once, and then use the one you cut for the next one, and the one you cut then for the next one. You're going to be off. So what do we have here? Why do they challenge Paul's authorship? Of first and second Timothy and Titus. Well, one of the main reasons they give is because these letters deal with church structure. And they say church structure was an issue in the second and the third century. And yes, it was. I don't dispute that. In the second and third century, the church was trying to figure out how to structure itself. You know, I'm all for getting rid of the junk lawsuits, but this is the kind of stuff we ought to be able to bring to court. Because I'd love to cross-examine these guys. I just can't figure out any excuse to sue them for putting out something stupid. Um, and I shouldn't say stupid. It's very intellectual. These guys can be brilliant, and, and it's very attractive. I, I should not say... I just mean I, I, I don't have any cause of action for cross-examining them, but I'd love to. Um, here's the reason why. If we look at the church, let's that's... Greece, Turkey, Egypt. This is the Mediterranean. You got Crete. Huh? Oh, Zoom. Thank you. Okay, y'all may not realize that, but that's the Mediterranean world. That's Spain. Okay, whoops. We'll zoom out. So this is the Mediterranean world. This is, uh, uh, there's the Greek peninsula. We'll add Corinth on there. Okay. Now, 
Uh, Istanbul goes back there. Nile. Here's a church in Ephesus. Now, the church in Ephesus isn't that big of a problem for the first couple of years. It's the church in Ephesus. But do you know what happens over time? Churches start dotting up here in Colossae and all in the Lycus Valley. And you've got churches going on down here in Jerusalem and that area. You've got tons of them established in Greece and Macedonia and Philippi and Corinth and Athens. You've got them on the island of Crete. You've got them uh, uh, in Rome. And you've got it down in Malta where Paul landed a uh, shipwreck. You've got Paul goes to Spain. You've got churches cropping up all over. Now, you get a small class, a Sunday school class of, of 10 in this church. And the leadership structure is not that big of a deal, but you still got to have leadership, right? But you get a class where you got 350 to 400 showing up on a Sunday, and your leadership structure gets more intricate. Leadership structure for the church at large was this church was a big issue in the second and third century. But the leadership structure for the individual churches was an issue from the very beginning. And these guys seem to have confused those facts. Yes, big global church structure. How does one church relate to another? Does Rome have primacy over the rest of the church? That becomes a big issue. But it wasn't in Paul's day. In Paul's day, local church structure was an issue. And that's what Paul's writing about in Timothy. He's not writing about the global church structure. He's not saying this bishop presides over that bishop. This church has dominance over that church. He's talking about each individual congregation. That was an issue all the way back to Acts. When the apostles, the church finally grew so big, the apostles couldn't do all of the, 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 the serving so they appoint the deacons. Local church structure was very important in Paul's time. Who on their right mind thinks Paul would have spent his mature adult life in God's mission field with the creation of these churches and before he dies he's not going to write some letters to try and help sustain the churches. I'm going to die. Forget those churches. They're on their own. No. He'd invested all he had in them. Second reason. So I don't buy that first reason. I'm sorry. Second reason. Paul gives personal history that's not found in the book of Acts. Well, Paul's not dead when Acts is over. He's in Rome on a trumped up charge. And if John Clinton were the judge in this criminal court, he'd be dismissed because he didn't do anything wrong. And church history teaches that Paul was let go and goes to Spain and does all these other ministry things totally consistent with his letters to Timothy and to Titus. If God graces me to be alive next week, I'll be able to tell you things I did this week that right now I can't tell you I did them yet. 
That, that's the nature of the timeline. That's not some carumba moment. Carumba. Third reason. There's a difference in vocabulary and style. Okay, fine. You know, there's a word uh, 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 that, that Paul uses in, 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 in uh, uh, Timothy that he doesn't use in other places. Let me show you the word. Paratheke is the word. It comes right here in First Timothy, I mean Second Timothy, chapter one, verse twelve. One of my favorite verses of Scripture. Paul says, "I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." By the way, that's one reason you can be a Christian and still question whether or not these were authentic. Paul doesn't say, "I know what I've believed." He says, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that Jesus is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. Well, that, and and an alternate translation is what's been entrusted to him. The Greek's kind of ambiguous. But that, what has been entrusted, Paul uses a word called paratheke. And Paul doesn't use it in his other letters. Well, it's not used in the entire New Testament anywhere else. There are tons of words that are used in only one place or another. It doesn't invalidate the scriptures. I'll use... Look, David Fleming is preaching the same sermon right now that he preached last hour. But if you got a transcript of the two sermons, you'd find he used some different words. And he may have ordered things different and he may have had a slightly different nuance. And I can just see some bright German theologian getting Fleming's sermon transcripts in 2,000 years and comparing them and saying, well, it's very clear that David preached the first sermon, but someone else preached the second. That's especially humorous because one of the reasons Ephesians is considered not to be authentic is because it's got so much in common with Colossians, which Paul wrote at the same time. Next, these are personal letters, the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. They're not letters to churches. You would expect Paul's style to be a little bit different. I write different emails to my mom than I write to you. I write different emails to my wife than I write to anyone in the world. I've got good friends that I will talk to differently I'm wearing this jacket because I care about you and that camera over there. I'd be a lot more comfortable if this was just about 10 of us. I'd be in a t-shirt teaching this right now. And this is later in Paul's life. If you're writing something five years later, I can remember when the word big time was big time. I can remember when the word awesome was awesome. But I don't typically walk around talking about big time and awesome. Right now. Then there was a period where the bomb was a good thing. Do you remember when bad was good? Ooh, he's bad. Really? Yeah, that good. (laughs) Seven up used to be the score. So Paul grows over time. And... I don't have time to finish this lesson because I've taken too long to explain it. We've got about eight minutes left. And I want to deal with church structure. So I'm going to leave this example out of the lesson right now.
Maybe I can get to it when we deal with Paul's view of the end times. But there was a time when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians where he thought, I believe, he would still be alive when the Lord returned. Because he talks about we who are still alive will be caught up together to meet him in the clouds. And by the time he writes 1 Corinthians, he's not talking that way anymore. By the time he's had a few near-death experiences at that point, and by the time he writes 1 Corinthians, he's saying, we who are dead <laughs> when the Lord returns. And he's talking about what will happen to him. He's, he's in the we who are dead point at that point. You know, Paul grew as he went along. Paul talks about three church officers. He talks about an overseer. That's the English standard version of, of, of the passage of scripture in Timothy and Titus. And he says, here's an overseer. The overseer, the Greek word is episkopos. We get episcopal from it. Episcopos, translated overseer. If you've got a King James Version, they translate it bishop. But this is what Paul says in 1 Timothy. He says, um, in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, what Paul says is, if you desire to be an elder, here are the qualifications. Husband of one wife, temperate, not given to drink. And he goes through a number of different qualifications. Those are for the old elders, the overseers, I should say. The bishops. Now, there's another office, if you will, that Paul writes about called an elder. But if you look closely, you'll see that for Paul, elder and overseer are still the same thing. It's just an alternate word. That does not change until about 60 or 70 years later. If he did not use them as the same, then maybe you'd have a better argument. But he uses them as, he uses them as the same. Overseer, episcopos, bishop, 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7. Elder. Presbyteros is the word that's used for elder. We get Presbyterian from it. Ultimately, in the next hundred years, the word priest comes out of it. That's the P-R-E-S you can see. But for Paul, it's not a priest yet. The elder is the same thing as the overseer. You can go to Acts and when Paul is saying goodbye to the elders of the church at Ephesus, in Acts 20, the elders come out. And Paul calls them overseers. In Titus, he uses the word interchangeably. If you want to be an elder, that's, I mean an overseer, that's great, because here's what an elder should be. It's the same thing for him. By the way, Peter talks about Christ being our shepherd... And our overseer. And that's why a lot of churches take the word shepherd and use it instead of overseer. And they'll have pastors. Okay? So pastor, bishop, elder, overseer. That's where they come from. And that's the local church structure that Paul sets in place. Under the lordship of Christ. To see to feeding spiritually the flock. And that's what they do. That's what Pastor Fleming does. 
he is responsible before God for spiritually feeding the flock. Now, deacon is another position. Deacon is the Greek word diakonos or diakonoi because Paul always speaks of plural. Paul always has plural deacons and he always has plural elders. But, uh, but diakonos would be singular for deacon as opposed to diakonoi. means servant in the Greek, just colloquially. And so you've got passages like Philippians 1.1, which everybody agrees Paul wrote. And do you know what Philippians 1.1 says? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who were in Philippi, including the elders and the deacons. These were church issues in his day. There were elders and deacons in his day. Is it so absurd to think he would have written to Timothy and urged him to make sure that good elders were chosen in the church and good deacons were chosen? Now, there is an issue that we'll discuss maybe next week as we try to get to the issue of women in the church. Are there deaconesses? Paul talks in Romans 16, 1 and 2 about Phoebe. And he uses the word deaconess. But because that word is the same word as servant, there's a question of whether or not that's an official role or whether she just was a servant who helped. And so the English Standard Version translates it, Phoebe, I commend to you, Phoebe, our servant, the servant of the Lord, as opposed to deaconess. So next week, we'll talk about Paul and the role of women in the church. Now, I've got two minutes left, so let me tell you something briefly. Gracie and Ephesians. The people who say Paul didn't write it, and the people who say Paul did write it. They say, well, the oldest manuscript, the people who say Paul did not write Ephesians have three compelling, they believe, arguments. Number one, the oldest manuscripts don't say in Ephesus, doesn't label it. So they're saying it wasn't really a letter to the church at Ephesus in its original form. Well, no, uh, we'll deal with it in a minute. Next, there are no personal greetings in the letter. Yet Paul spent so much time in Ephesus that you would think Paul would have extended personal greetings like he does in most of his other letters. And the third problem is it's awfully similar to Colossians and to 1 Peter. So it was probably written later using those as a source. Now those who agree with me that Paul wrote it just from an academic perspective... I want to say that this letter is viewed not just by me, but by most scholars as an, what's called an encyclical letter. It wasn't written just to the church at Ephesus. It was written, Ephesus was a cultural and, and, and community center for, it was this hub. It's like Lubbock. It was the hub of the plains. It was the hub of the Lycus Valley and surrounding regions. And, and everybody, all commerce would come through Ephesus. It was the port city. And so, yeah, the church at Ephesus would insert in Ephesus in a later copy of it because they wanted everybody to know it came from them. But Paul wrote the, the letter to be distributed to a whole bunch of people. That's also why there aren't a bunch of personal greetings in it. He didn't write it just for that church in Ephesus. He wrote it for all of those churches in that area while Paul was in prison. 
like he did Colossians for the Colossi church to be read around. Now, it's interesting to me that it does say in Ephesus, Ephesians 6 says, I'm sending this letter with Tychicus, who's your buddy and my buddy, and he'll tell you all the personal details. He didn't leave it out. He wasn't cold. And as to the similarity with Colossians and 1 Peter, well, he wrote Colossians at the same time. You'd expect them to be similar. And by the way, Peter read Paul. Tychicus takes Colossians to the Colossi church too. You can read that in Colossians. See, other people will say, well, Paul, uh, whoever wrote Ephesians clearly just made up the name Tychicus reading Colossians. Well, no. You know, because surely if Paul really wrote both, he'd have sent different messengers to those churches. Since they're both on the same, you know, way. Peter, if you read Second Peter, he talks about reading Paul's letters. It's not surprising that Peter and Paul would have common things. That's not even to mention the fact that they worship the same God and, and the same Jesus and the same Holy Spirit's inspiring their work. So, with confidence, we can read our scriptures. Be careful of those who would try to lead astray and, and, and undermine your confidence. Points for home. Paul says, I'm writing to you so that you can be sure you're, you're, you're following and living godly lives. The reason it's important that we have godly leaders. And the reason it's important we have godly leadership is because it affects who we are. The reason I thank God for our pastors at this church is because they're godly men who study scripture and try hard to teach it. Oh, do I agree with everything they say? No. Do they agree with everything I say in here? No. But we agree on about 98% of it. And, <laughs> and, and we agree on the core issues. And these are godly men that I can learn under. That will change the way I live as God ministers to me through his word taught by these people. Does that make sense? It's important we have godly leaders. I'd, I, I got to be honest. I'd have trouble going to a church where Wayne Meeks is the preacher. Paul says to Titus that the elder must hold firm to his faith to give sound instruction and doctrine. And that's important. Is, is the elder, the bishop, the pastor concerned about his popularity or his message? Is he concerned about um, how he looks and how many people are reading his books? Is he concerned about um, the color coordination of his ensemble? Is he concerned about how many people like him and invite him over to lunch? Is he concerned about who wants to give him a raise? Or is he concerned about his message? If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Anybody who serves does. It's not easy. Noble task is real nice religious translation. What it really says in the Greek is hard work. 
Can you imagine a job at a church of 10,000 people where 10,000 people think they're your boss? It's hard work. Would you pray with me? And while we're praying, if you're a deacon, would you stand up? We've got some deacons in this class. Lord, we thank you for these men that are standing. We thank you for the leadership in this church. We thank you for the servants in this church. We thank you for the members of this church. We thank you for the ministry of this church. We thank you that your Holy Spirit has come down and changed the course of the world through us working together in the body of Christ. May your truth ring out like a bell. May those who question, find answers that satisfy not just the heart and the soul, but the mind. Because we confess you to be the truth and the light of the world that lights our darkness and brings us into the glorious sunshine of your Son. Through Jesus' most holy name, we pray with confidence. Amen.